How do you feel about your job? Studs Terkel, the famous Chicago author, interviewed hundreds of people about their jobs, and he recorded what they said in his 1974 book, Working. He wrote this in the introduction about his book and about his study. It is about a search, too, for daily meaning as well as daily bread, for recognition as well as cash, for astonishment rather than torpor, in short, for a sort of life rather than a Monday through Friday sort of dying. Perhaps immortality, too, is part of the quest. To be remembered was the wish, spoken and unspoken, of the heroes and heroines of this book. How do we make peace with the pointlessness of life? That's what the preacher in Ecclesiastes has been asking and seeking to answer in this book that we are studying Look at Ecclesiastes chapter 3 and verse 9. We're going to study verses 1 through 11, but right in the middle of this is his question. Verse 9, what profit is there to the worker from that in which he toils? What profit is there for the worker in that in which he toils, he works? The Hebrew word for gain or profit is a word that means value or benefit. What's the value or benefit in what we do for our jobs? The New Living Translation expresses it this way. What do people really get for all their hard work? And the expected answer to that question is nothing in Ecclesiastes. Life is pointless. And when life seems pointless then how do you find contentment? Where do we look for satisfaction and significance in a life that seems so meaningless? And the preacher gives three answers in Ecclesiastes chapter 3 and verses 1 through 11. Three answers to that question. How do we make peace with the pointlessness of life? We make peace, first of all, with the pointlessness of life when we accept the earthly rhythms God designs for our lives. God is in control. We just finished singing that. And the first step to finding contentment in a life which often seems so pointless and so meaningless is that we find contentment when we accept the earthly rhythms God designs for our lives. Now, I don't know about you, but I've spent much of my life looking forward to the next stage of life. Have you ever thought about that? When I was a child, I couldn't wait to be a teenager. Wow! Then I'd be really living. When I was a teenager... I couldn't wait to be in college because the college kids had the best life. And when I was in college, I couldn't wait to get out of college (laughs) and be a young adult and get a job and get married and settle down. And when I was out of college and I was working in a factory up in Bangor, I couldn't wait to quit and go to seminary, graduate school. And when I was in graduate school, I couldn't wait till I could get done and start a ministry. 
And now, I've been ministering. (laughs) I'm 56 years old. And I can't wait till retirement. (laughs) At least that is what I think. The older I get, though, the less exciting getting older gets. Must have been a comment back there. (laughs) All right, why are we always wishing our lives away for the life that is yet to be? We need to learn what Ecclesiastes teaches us. Chapter 3 and verse 1. There is an appointed time for everything, and there is a time for every event under heaven. Now, there are two different words for time that are used in this passage. The first word for time is a word that means appointed time. This word refers to a fixed or destined or ordained time. It's used, by the way, over in Esther chapter 9 and verse 27 for the Jewish feast of Purim, which is an appointed time to celebrate the deliverance of Israel. The second word for time in this verse is a word that means season, or period of time, or unit of time. It was used of the rainy season, or the mating season, or the harvest season. So the preacher tells us that there is an appointed time for everything, and a season of time during which important things happen. And he goes on to describe the seasons of time as a season, or each season, as a season for every event, purpose, or activity under heaven. And that's the word that is then used through the rest of the verses as he talks about these seasons of time. So God is in control, right? And he appoints specific times for specific specific things, but God also providentially guides the seasons of life And we must find contentment or joy in each season of life. The Hebrew word in verse 1 that is translated event or activity is a a word that literally means desire, in every desire. This is something that you take pleasure in or enjoyment in, this activity or event in your life. Now, we're not told to be happy about every event, everything that happens. But we are to find contentment or happiness in each season of life. Because God is the one in control of all of those seasons. We don't have to be happy about each thing that happens to us. But we can find happiness in those seasons of life because we rest in God's sovereign control over life. So let's take a look, verses 2 through 8. With that in mind, and the, word that is, the time word that is used here is the season word. A season then, or a, a time to give birth and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to uproot what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to tear down and a time to build up. 
A time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to throw stones and a time to gather stones, a time to embrace and a time to shun embracing, a time to search and a time to give up as lost, a time to keep and a time to throw away, a time to tear apart and a time to sew together, a time to be silent and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace." So God has established these times for our lives. And there is a rhythm to life that God ordains. And to find contentment, we must learn to accept the rhythms of life. There are 14 couplets in this section. This is poetry, by the way. It is Hebrew poetry. So there are 14 couplets in this section. And each couplet is a polar opposite. The point is that life follows a rhythm of opposites. It does no good to fight the rhythm of life. If you spend your life fighting the the rhythm that God has established for life, then you end up, what? Constantly discontented in life. You'll spend your life wishing your life away, and that is... In fact, exactly what we often do, and that's why we're so dissatisfied with life. Now, some of these polar opposites need little explanation. There is a time to be born and a time to die. I mean, that sort of makes sense. There's a beginning and an end to life. But we struggle with some of these other opposites in here. There's a time to kill and a time to heal. That's life. Does God ordain killing? Yes. God did. I don't have time to explore that. It's a very difficult subject, but I suggest to you that the Bible says God ordained killing in terms of capital punishment, for example, and in terms of just war. And I believe the Bible supports a just war concept. The last couplet in the sequence says, there's a time for war and a time for peace. That's the reality. Now, we might find it difficult to determine when to fight and when to make peace, both individually and as nations, certainly. That's the difficulty of just war. When is it just? When is it a just war and when is is it an unjust war? But he says, in terms of the rhythm of life, there is a time to make war and for killing to take place. And there is a time for peace and healing. And our ability to discern the seasons of life is a problem. But these verses describe the reality of how life works in this world. There is a time to weep. And a time to laugh. Both are part of life. We mourn, he says, and we dance. Sometimes, even in the same day, we're weak. We may not like it, but these are the seasons we go through in life. There's a time to embrace in love. 
And there's a time when we no longer can embrace in love. The loved one is gone. In the agricultural world, there's a time to cast stones and there's a time to gather stones. Probably refers to when you clear a field for your crops, you have to throw the stones away. But then when you have to build a stone wall or a house, you gather those stones. There's a time and a place for both in life. There's a time to love, he says, and a time to hate. Hmm. Is it ever a right time to hate? I suggest to you, yes, once again. When you hate what God hates, it's not unrighteous no matter what our society says. And when you love what God loves, it is a pure love. Christians in Germany should have hated what Adolf Hitler was doing. Because God hated what Adolf Hitler was doing. There's a time to pursue and seek and search. And there's a time to lose and let go. Stand back. We go through seasons of life when we are pursuing goals. And seasons of life when we let things go. There's a time to keep silence. And a time to speak up. Of course, we need to discern which time it is, right? Too often we speak when we should be silent, and we are silent when we should speak up. The point is that we need to accept the earthly rhythms God designs for our lives. Elizabeth Elliot said, Resignation is surrender to fate. Acceptance is surrender to God. There is a difference between fatalism and just simply resigning yourself to fate. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about acceptance, which brings contentment and peace, not resignation. Acceptance is surrender to God. All is well. He's in control, you see. Not resignation. Jill Briscoe writes, Resignation lies down quietly in an empty universe. Acceptance rises up to meet the God who fills that universe with purpose and destiny. Resignation says, I can't. And God says, I can. Resignation says, it's all over for me. Acceptance asks, now that I'm here, Lord, what's next? Resignation says, what a waste. Acceptance says, in what redemptive way can you use this mess, Lord? Life twists and turns. We can always say it is well with our souls because God is undergirding every season of life that we experience. Nothing happens that God is not there to catch you when you fall. Do you believe that? In 2008, a remarkable documentary came out titled Man on Wire. It examines the most amazing exploit of tightrope walker Philippe Pettit. In 1974, Pettit had a secret plan to extend a steel wire between the two towers of the World Trade Center in New York. At that time, the towers were still under construction. 
After much planning and practice, the day arrived. Pettit and his fellow conspirators sneaked into the top of the buildings. They shot a wire across the the quarter-mile high, uh, quarter-mile distance uh, that, uh, that spanned the north and south towers, and Pettit went to work. When all was said and done, Pettit was on the wire between the two towers for 45 minutes. Thousands gathered below to watch him. On each end of the wire, police waited for him to finish. He actually walked back and forth eight times on that wire before he finally ended up in police custody. Pettit now lives in New York's Catskill Mountains, and a wire stretches across his backyard, and he still practices several hours a day. Pettit told a Newsweek reporter that it never occurred to him to use a safety net when walking the wire. He added, I never fall. But yes, I have landed on the earth many, many times. I never fall, but I've landed on the earth many, many times. We Christians, think about this, we Christians never, ever fall. But we sure land on the earth a lot, don't we? Why? Because God is there. Whatever you've experienced, whatever season of life you're going through, God's in it with you. And you won't fall. You'll land on the earth, though. And he'll take care of you. That's the providence of God. And that's why we can say it is well with our souls. That's why we can say all is well, God's in control. No matter what season you're going through in life. Because God is always there to catch us and guide us. So we can accept the earthly rhythms of life because God is our safety net. And secondly... We appreciate the perfect timing God plans for our lives. This is the second step in finding contentment. Appreciate the perfect timing God plans for your life. Verse 10. I have seen the task which God has given the sons of men with which to occupy themselves. He has made everything appropriate or beautiful in its time. I have seen the ordeal, the burden which God gives to the sons of men. He has made everything beautiful in its time. In 2001, Hajnal Ban decided she was tired of being what she considered short. She was five feet, one inch tall. She, uh, this Australian w- woman said she had been made fun of all her life for being short. And she was convinced that her height was the sole reason she wasn't taken seriously in the professional world. But what do you do about being short? I mean, what can you change about your height? Well, Bond found a solution in Russia, a painful solution, but a solution. According to an article in the Times of London, Russian doctors agreed to break both her legs in four places and stretch them slowly for one millimeter every day for nine months. After all the breaking and stretching, 
She then wore plaster casts for three additional months to make those changes permanent. The whole process cost her $40,000. And she gained three inches in height. She insists that it was worth it. She says she gained respect and now is a councilwoman in Australia. When asked by a Times reporter if she would pursue further cosmetic enhancements, Bond said, I haven't made a decision on whether I will in the future or not. I know I'll get wrinkles and put on weight, and I'll even shrink as I get older, so we'll see what happens. But I'm not fixated on self-image. Why are we so discontented with how we're made? Or where we live? Or the weather? (laughs) That's an inside joke for a few people at the start of the service this morning. What we look like? Our desires and goals to get ahead? To be successful in life as others define success? I want to say this kindly because I say it to myself. Why are we so discontented? Because we're discontented with God. That's the bottom line. We're really discontented with God. God makes everything beautiful in its time. But we do not appreciate God's timing. We want it now. The preacher looks around at human life, and he sees the tasks that God has given to humans. And the word task refers to an activity that requires effort. It also means troubles or cares or burdens, misfortunes, which is why another translation uses the word burden here. What do you see as your burden in life? Your trouble, your care. God gave it to you. Did you read the verse? It's what it says. Verse 10. I have seen the burden which God has given to the sons of men. Even the burdens of life are gifts God gives us. Not because the burdens are good in themselves or because they are great, but because the solution in his time is great and he gets the glory. That's why he weaves even those burdens into our lives. So that he provides the solution and gets the glory. And we trust and rest in his timing for those solutions. Don't like how you look? Guess what? In glory forever, we're all going to look beautiful. God's timing. God gives us these ordeals, these struggles and burdens in life as a part of his design for our lives so that when he makes it all beautiful in the end, he gets the praise. God has a way of working everything out in his time. But we struggle with patience, don't we? We want it all now. 
We want to be beautiful and successful now. We don't want to wait for God's timing. We want to fix it now. And so what happens? We live discontented lives. That's what happens. We're discontented with where we are and what we're doing and all of the rest of it because we're not willing to wait on God's perfect timing for our lives. And he does have a plan for your life, doesn't he? In his autobiography, Buck O'Neill tells of being a black man who played professional baseball before African Americans were allowed to play in the all-white major leagues. Before Jackie Robinson broke that race barrier, there were the what they called the Negro Leagues. And he played in those. And in 1947, when the race barrier was broken, he was considered too old to play in the big leagues, as were most of his teammates, talented, talented players. Many of his friends grew bitter about their missed opportunities. O'Neill writes about a reunion where the Negro League players gathered in Ashland, Kentucky. A reporter from Sports Illustrated asked him if he had any regrets coming along as he did before Jackie Robinson integrated the major leagues and never having a chance to play in the major leagues. And this is what he told the reporter from Sports Illustrated. Waste no tears for me. I didn't come along too early. I was right on time. I don't have a bitter story. I truly believe I have been blessed. In fact, that's the title of his autobiography, I Was Right on Time. God is always right on time with your life and mine. He's never too early and he's never too late. And if we're following the Lord, then what? We're right on time. The reason we're discontented so much is we don't like the timing. We're not willing to say, yes, I'm right on time, God, because I'm with you. I want it different. And so we have no peace. We have no contentment. When we follow God, we're always right on time because he's always right on time. Are you missing out? Not with God. Not when you trust his timing for your lives. Finally, we make peace with the pointlessness of life when we trust the eternal purpose God establishes for our lives. Verse 11, second half of the verse He has also set eternity in their heart, yet so that man will not find out the work which God has done from the beginning, even to the end. Stuart Briscoe tells a story of a pastor friend of his who was officiating at a funeral of a war veteran. The dead man's military friends wanted to uh, have a part in the funeral service, 
at the funeral home. So they requested the pastor to lead them down to the casket, and they would march in in military precision down to the casket, stand for a solemn moment of remembrance with their, with their fellow uh, veteran, and then the pastor would lead them out a side door. So they'd march down, honor him, and then march out. So the pastor proceeded to do this. Unfortunately, the effect was somewhat marred when he picked the wrong door as he left. The result was that they marched with military precision right into a broom closet. And they had to back out of the broom closet to find the right door. Do you ever feel like God led you into a broom closet? What are you doing, God? I thought I was following you. Now you have to beat a hasty retreat. And now you're confused. Well, Solomon understood exactly what you were experiencing. And the discontentment that comes from that confusion. We struggle to understand God's plan. And yet... We have to trust his plan. How do you trust what you can't understand? The preacher tells us in verse 11 that God set or put eternity into our hearts. So, spiritually, internally, we were built with an eternal orientation to life. This is one of the attributes that sets us apart from the animal world. I mean, pigs don't care about the grand master plan for their lives. All right? They don't think about that. Humans do. Because God set or put into our lives eternity. And so we want to understand the scope of God's plan. We want to know why things happen. We want to know where we are going, how it will end. It's because we have eternity in our hearts. It's the way God made us. The problem is that even with eternity in our hearts, he says in verse 11, we still don't understand the beginning from the end in terms of God's plan. The Hebrew is a little difficult in this verse, but basically the sense is that we want to know because we are made with an eternal perspective, but we cannot really find it out in terms of what God's total plan is for our lives, the beginning and the end of what God is doing. So what are we left with? We are left trusting God that we will not end up in the broom closets of life. There is nothing else to do but to trust God's plan for our lives and invest our portfolio in eternity, not in this world. We live with hearts made for eternity, but with eyes that only see today. That's all we can see. No wonder we sometimes get discouraged. The only way to avoid discouragement is by faith in God's eternal perspective. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 4, verses 16 to 18, Therefore we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, 
Yet our inner man is being renewed day by day, for momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory, far beyond comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, for the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. We live with hearts made for eternity, but eyes that only see here and now. So we have to trust by faith in God's eternal plan and live for that plan. God calls us to live with that eternal perspective even when we do not understand God's plan for our lives. Even when we do not understand God's beginning from God's end or God's end from God's beginning. God's ways are not our ways, the scripture says. Even when you don't understand it, we have to trust it. Paul wrote in Colossians chapter 3, verse 1, Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. You've heard someone say, perhaps, he's so heavenly minded, he's no earthly good. The truth is exactly the opposite. The more heavenly minded we are, the more earthly good we become. Because God made us, and God put eternity in our hearts. And so he calls us to live by faith with that eternal perspective. Everything we do is to be done with eternity in mind. jobs, our homes, our lives. Everything we do is to be done with eternity in mind. The only investments we make that last after we are gone, we've already talked about this in Ecclesiastes, haven't we? The only investments we make that last after we're gone are heavenly investments. Every other investment of time and money that we make will not last. It is wasted effort. So are you living for eternity? It's the way to find contentment in life. To remember that eternal perspective. Betty Maxfield, who survived the 911 tragedy at the Pentagon, said these words, I should have been dead. I was for some reason saved. My question now is, what am I supposed to do with it? I just can't go waste it. I thought I was living my life well before, but obviously there's more that I can do to say thank you for my life and a second chance at it. I should have been dead. I thought I was living pretty good. But obviously there's more I can do to say thank you for the life you're giving me. We may not understand God's whole plan, what he has in store for us, but we know that he put eternity into our hearts and we can trust his eternal plan for our lives. And we can live our lives as a thank you to God every moment, every day, for all he has done for us. We can live with that eternal mindset. And that is a partial answer to what seems to be the pointlessness of life. Two years ago, Chris Downey had just started a promising architectural job at a successful design firm. A few weeks after he took the job, 
he noticed that there was something wrong with his vision, his eyes. So he went to the doctors. The doctors told him that he had a tumor wrapped around his optic nerve and it required immediate surgery. After the surgery, he could see with blurred sight only. And five days later, everything went absolutely dark. Downey had become permanently blind. Just a few weeks after starting his career as an architect, He tried to maintain his architectural work, but he couldn't read the plans or use the design software. Initially, his limitations jeopardized his job until he found a blind computer scientist who had devised a way to read tactile architectural plans. Much to his surprise, Downey discovered that his blindness actually gave him a unique way to observe interior spaces, not with his eyes anymore, but with his fingers. And as one of the company vice presidents would later say, at first I thought, okay, this is going to be a limitation, but then I realized that the way he reads drawings is the way we experience space. He sees things that we don't see. Downey is now able to use his fingers to walk through space and view it from a different and sometimes better perspective. Because of his blindness, he can also envision new possibilities for the creative use of space. And as a result, his limitations or weaknesses have become gifts and strengths, not only for himself, for his community, but for his career as an architect. Life throws us curves, doesn't it? God throws us curves. Maybe maybe it's a job loss or a career change. Maybe it's a health issue like Downey totally changed his whole life. And suddenly it seems pointless. All you've worked for. What do you do? Well, you have a choice, don't you? I have a choice. Any of us do. How we respond to those kinds of curves that God throws at us. How do we make peace with the seeming pointlessness of life? Well, here are three suggestions from this passage. Number one, accept the earthly rhythms God designs for your life. Number two, appreciate the perfect timing God plans for your life. Trust him that he makes all things beautiful. And three, trust the eternal purpose that God establishes for your life. Father, honestly, we wrestle with our discontentment. We are often such unhappy people. And honestly, Lord, we confess to you that it's because we really don't trust what you've thrown into our lives. We really don't trust your eternal plan and purpose. We don't really accept the rhythms of life that you designed for us. And so we're always wishing it away on for something else. Lord, teach us to be content with where we are and who you are and to live with an eternal perspective, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.